Welcome to the Bike Pack Adventures Podcast. I am your host, Chris Panaski. This podcast was created so as to share the stories of bike tours, bike packers, and endurance cyclists from around the world as they embark on amazing adventures. Through their stories, you'll be able to learn the ins and outs of bike travel. You'll get insight into various countries and cultures around the world, hear fantastic stories of their journeys. Through both mine and my guests' experiences, you'll learn about the pros and cons of specific gear, bikes, and bike setups. If you're new to bike travel and considering going on an adventure, I hope the podcast provides you with that extra little bit of motivation to make it happen. I want to thank Panorama Cycles, Redshift Sports, Restrap, Race Day Fuel, and Brockman Cyclery for supporting Bike Pack Adventures and helping to keep me on the bike. Check out the show notes for more information about these amazing companies. Thanks and keep on pedaling. In this episode of the Bike Pack Adventures podcast, I have a chance to speak with Ty Doman. Ty first got on my radar while on his friend Lewis's podcast a couple years back. Since then, I've followed his adventures, and now that he's in Western Canada, it seemed like the perfect time to have him come on the show and share his story. When it comes to biking, Ty has really run the gamut, racing everything from road to track to mountain bike and now bikepacking. He's also an accomplished bike tour, or as he would call it, overlander. In 2014, he embarked on a bike tour that lasted roughly two years, covering 30,000 kilometers, and did it again this past year with his wife, Chelsea, cycling from Scotland to Turkey and another 10,000 kilometers. We didn't dive too much into his bike pack racing and bag making brand, Yana Threadworks, and we'll save that for another day. Hope you enjoy this little convo with Ty. Ty, welcome to the Bike Pack Adventures podcast. G'day, mate. How are you? I'm all right. How are you doing? Yeah, good, good. How's your? Uh, how long have you been in Canada now? When did you guys arrive? Uh, so what day is it today? This is the problem. I don't even know what day. We are the fifteenth, I think. Yeah, so it's Wednesday, and we arrived uh, to like Thursday week ago. So almost two weeks. Oh, okay. Yeah, so like on. the jet lag is more or less in check now. Absolutely. Yeah, yeah everything's sorted. I'm just getting used to. Yeah, relaxing, and uh, yeah, the weather here has been perfect. It hasn't snowed yet, so we're sort of getting out and about, which is super handy when you are living on the bike for such a long time, and then all of a sudden everything stops. Um, it's nice to still get out and about. So yeah. we've been really lucky. Yeah. And I saw on um, yeah, I saw on some other people's posts that there was snow, and like, um, well, you know, Steve O'Shaughnessy. I think I saw there was yeah. snow for him. And we, you guys are just kind of on the other side of the mountain, so it still hasn't quite reached well, you yet. Right? No, we actually landed in um, Calgary on the way to Edmonton. So we flew from okay. uh, Istanbul and then came through Calgary. And Calgary, it was bucketing. And if you're on any of the Calgary uh, Facebook groups for the mountain bike trails, they're all, they're all out and about in the snow for oh, okay. a week or two. And we had nothing up here. So, you know, 300 kilometers north and it's just nothing. It's just crisp. There's a, a bit of ice around, but barely anything yeah. so um how, yeah. how do you like edmonton we absolutely love edmonton so chelsea my wife um grew up here and ideally i mean we wouldn't have a problem living here this is where our family and friends are but three hours from the mountains is very different to being 45 minutes from the mountains. right yeah you, know, you can go for a day or you can go after work you can do whatever um that three-hour barrier is is pretty significant. Um, mm-hmm. So even when we lived in Australia, we we were two hours from the snow uh, or from the mountains, and two hours from the beach. And so you know, depending on what season it was, we could 
sort of deal with that. You could even head there, you know, Friday night, you'd head out um, and then, you know, spend two nights out and come back and you sort of had three days. But as yeah. soon as you make it, but it becomes a, it becomes an expensive weekends, you yeah. know, just to do that. Oh yeah. There's, there's just no way. Um, and Australia is a bit different. We've got a lot more, you know, wide open space that you can, you can just wild camp in and always find a different spot. But if we're heading straight into Jasper from Edmonton, there's not so many places you can sort of get away from everyone yeah. um, every time. And, you know, it's a lot colder here as well. So Yeah, and Edmonton um, is a huge city, right? So it's like, I mean, can, um, for Canada standards, maybe for Australia standards too, it's a pretty big city. Yeah, yeah, it is. Yeah, and, yeah. Um, and I don't think they have, like, I think there's probably lots of trails to ride bikes on, yeah. but, like, more like local commuter trails and maybe some pathways um, kind of thing? Yeah, well, I'm currently in St. Albert, which is a small town that's slowly being enveloped into okay. Edmonton. And I just spent, uh, like, we're near Big Lake, and I, we're literally, like, a few hundred metres from a big lake, and I, it's called Big Lake, and it is a big lake. That's pretty convenient. Um, spent about, yeah, spent about an hour riding single track in there mm-hmm. um, in sort of okay. dense sort of forest and I could have you could probably ride an hour and a half in there without doing the same trail oh, in the sweet. same direction yeah, yeah. Um, and then Edmonton the River Valley is just beautiful so the Alberta Bikepacking Collective runs a Friday night yeah. social ride which um, we were lucky enough to get onto last week um, and yeah you can ride for hours and hours and hours and Two guys. Oh no! I think there was about five people that did that ride on Friday night. Did two hundred kilometers of riding on Friday night. So they well finished on Saturday morning for a big breakfast. But so they did the twenty kilometer social ride and then just kept going and ended mm. up doing a whole pile of gravel and trails. So you know you can be anywhere in the world these days, and there's someone else or there's a bunch of other people who are into cycling yeah. off road and things have just been developed. So. I have no idea who developed the little trails just outside of where I'm staying at the okay. moment, but you know, I didn't see a single human. I didn't see signs of other cyclists, but it was built by cyclists at some stage. Yeah. So, um, yeah, you just make a, and I make guess, of it what you I can. guess for you, cause you're, you were first a mountain biker and, uh, like, and we'll yeah. jump into that, but I guess yeah. like you want to be closer to the mountains and like big trails oh, yeah. and stuff. Right. Like, yeah, yeah, exactly. But I mean, I've lived in flat places as well. And, um, have you, you know, cycled any you know, flat places? Like, <laughs> uh, yes. <laughs> um, but you know, yeah, you can sort of be anywhere. And, uh, you know, this, the middle of Australia is a, a city called Alice Springs and it's near where Uluru is, um, formerly known as Ayers Rock. And so it's in the middle of the mm. desert in the middle of Australia. And you wouldn't think there would be much there, but there's hundreds, hundreds of kilometers of pristine desert single track that, I love oh, more cool. than a lot of the mountainous foresty single track in southeastern Australia. Yeah, yeah. So, you know, again, like I say, it, it, you make of it what you what you can. You gotta, you're going to have to tell me more. What is desert single track? Like, I mean, it's just like a pack down path through the desert or is it? Well, it's it's still quite rocky. Okay. You know, any ancient land is going to be um, going to have a lot of uh, rocky and sandy terrain and uh, just very low scrub so there's no forest you can see the horizon anywhere you are but you'll do you know five meters elevation every you know 100 meters or something you know okay. it's te- technical enough yeah that it's just 
really good fun. Um, cool. And yeah, so there's even a, a downhill track there that's 200 meters long. So <laughs> yeah, all sorts of weird things, but such a great place to ride. Yeah, yeah. So I, it's all because of the local communities. So. Yeah. So tell me, tell us, uh, tell us about yourself, like a little bit of your background. And you're from the north of Australia, right? Is that correct? No. Or, no? Well, no. I was actually born in Adelaide, which is in um, South Australia, which is okay. one of the middle, the middle state, and uh, it's Adelaide's at the bottom, sort of on the ocean. And um, I, yeah, I never really had a you know, I had a bike as a very small child and then there was a long period of I didn't have a bike and then my brother got a part-time job at the supermarket and bought a mountain bike and I uh, half claimed that as my own selfishly and would uh, go out for a ride every afternoon and then, um, yeah, I just had a natural affinity for it. I absolutely loved it. But then I joined the army um, and went to officer training when I was, yeah, so when I was 17 and three months old, I left home went to do officer training at the defense force academy in australia and one of the funniest things was that you didn't have leave you had leave on friday nights and then you had a uh, leave for like the rest of the weekend from from noon on saturday but there was a loophole which was the fact that you could do personal training so you could go for a run or a bike ride and Uh, so i thought well this is the perfect loophole and i uh, bought a mountain bike because I loved it, but also because I could escape and uh, I would ride to the pub and have a beer and come home. And that was <laughs> my personal training. I got spoken to one day, like one of my uh, superior officers said, just watch yourself. We know what's going on. But um, he wasn't, he wasn't angry. It was just, he was like, Hey, if you're clever enough to get <laughs> yeah. away with it, like, yeah. 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 So, um, yeah, I did that. So that was, again, that was in Southern Australia. And then I moved, um, moved to northern australia where it was tropical and started uh really getting into mountain biking a bit more seriously there's amazing trails up there um my, my military training was in canberra which has some of the best trails in australia okay. um and and the government actually funds a lot of the uh trail building and things there or they have in the past so that was good i moved to northern australia and um and then it started getting uh, you would have the wet season. So in summer, it rains the whole time. So um, mm. you can't really mountain bike because it's too muddy and too wet. So that's when I decided to get into uh, road cycling and track cycling. So they were just two other um, avenues for cycling because I just loved it so much and um, was lucky enough to, yeah, uh, sort of get a bit of sponsorship as a road cyclist and mm. became a state champion in, in road and criterion up there, which wasn't. Um, which sounds impressive, but there wasn't that many, that much competition. Yeah, in, uh, state in the champion, and States. you're the only cyclist now. <laughs> yeah, nah. um, and then uh, track cycling as well, which I thought would be like swimming laps in a pool, but was exactly the opposite. Oh, it was yeah? just as just as adrenaline pumping as riding a downhill mountain bike. It was to me, you know. I've never tried everyone, it yet. But, um, it's it's on my like list of uh, things to do, and I know there's a couple of velodromes. Like there's one near Montreal somewhere. Yeah. There's you one near Toronto to. somewhere, but they're yeah. so far, and I'm like, ah, uh, you know. Yeah, and that's the thing. It's a hard one. Um, if it's convenient, it's one of the best uh, best weeknight sort of pursuits because it's so structured. You know exactly what's going to happen, but but you really build up a lot of skills and a lot of strength, you know, obviously mm-hmm. leg strength. You look at some of the sprint cyclists and and um, discipline and trust. You know, learn, you learn to trust other cyclists and, you know, you've got no brakes and you're riding within inches of each other at 60 kilometres an hour around a bank track and 
if you slow down, you fall off. If you go too fast and hit someone, you slide off. And it's just, yeah, it is that, absolutely amazing. That is something I never really considered. That's mental because I'm so used to yeah. like when I rode biked a lot in Malaysia, it yeah. was like we were yeah. real close to each other, but you always yeah. kind of got that one finger on the brakes. Yeah, yeah, you could yeah. just, just nudge it to, yeah, yeah, to yeah. not close the gap too much, you know? Yeah. yeah. No, so I, I loved that and was lucky enough to compete at that national level. And that was great. Um, and then, yeah, then it sort of, uh, you know, hiking and outdoor pursuits sort of started mixing back in with the cycling and started doing more long distance. I don't know if you call them marathon events mm-hmm. um, in the Northern Hemisphere, so 100 kilometer mountain bike races and things. And, you know, everything begins to evolve and did a, you know, a short trip across uh, Tasmania, which is the, the I've heard large it's great. island. I've heard it's fantastic. Oh, it, you know, if, if we could live there and get a job it would be uh another option for us it's a beautiful place but um yeah so i did sort of attach some panniers to my mountain bike and rode across that and really enjoyed it and then um uh yeah started getting into 24 hour mountain bike racing um and that was a a funny introduction because i uh had a bunch of friends and we all decided to enter solo but create a 12 man team so we would ride around in a Congo line for as long as we possibly could. And I, you know, previously I thought, you know, solo was just crazy. So I did a couple of uh, four man team events mm-hmm. for the 24, but because we had fun doing this sort of joking solo thing, I thought, well, I might as well give that a go. And then um, ended up doing seven solo 24s single speed, you know, po- portion of my life so that was a phase of my life mm. that I really enjoyed and we happened to have the world championships in Australia so um, I raced at that on my single speed um, and I will say I, I don't think there should be single speed categories in any event other than a single speed only event so I entered the open category on my single speed because I think it's your own choice yeah. <laughs> and um, yeah and so I, I, I really enjoyed that um, and then yeah yeah then I sort of decided to pack up and ride around the world that I didn't have a plan for. I um, always had a, uh, an idea that I would one day end up spending months and months riding around France because, you know, when you live in Canada or Australia, you see another country and yeah. you think it's massive, but it's not. Yeah. So, you know, France is tiny. Um, so what I ended up doing was landing in, um, in uh, well, I was actually deployed to Afghanistan and I, all my belongings were in storage and I had basically, you know, disconnected from the real world. So I thought I'd make the most of that and just leave my belongings in storage and take a year off, um, oh, and start okay. riding, start riding around the world. <clears throat> well, actually just start riding. So I landed in Istanbul and, um, started riding and sort of a six or seven months in, I realized the hardest part of departing on a trip like that is what they call the doorstep mile. Mm-hmm. So the doorstep mile is literally the mile from your doorstep. And in order to undertake that mile, you have to have organized all these things, you know, close your bank, your uh, electricity and mm-hmm. all these things, moved your stuff out of your house, done all these, uh, um, you know, organized all these things just to get that mile done. And I got six months into the trip and realized that you could just exist on the bike forever. Yeah. So I, um, That's a cool then, term uh, for a doorstep mile, yeah. Yeah. I thought it was so like I, the, the, the mile it takes you when you're feeling of walking from your living room to your door, and you're like, no, okay, here we go. <laughs> no, so they, they call it the hardest part <laughs> yeah. of any journey. And, um, yeah, so I sort of – I was on um, 
extended leave from work and I just wrote to my work and said, I'm going to take another year off um, without pay. And they were happy with that. So it took two years off. And Were uh, you military still at the time or you had gotten yeah, out? Yeah. 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 I was still military. So I was able to take two years off and walk straight back into my job without losing any seniority. Um, and, awesome. and so that was sort of, yeah, I met Chelsea a couple of months later on, on a ferry in Scotland. And then we ended up riding together for the whole second year of that round the world trip. Mm. And um, it was never meant to be a round the world trip. It just happens that I think there's five criteria that the Guinness book of records um, state for a round the world journey. And I happened to meet them all. So now oh, okay. I call it, I call it around yeah, the world journey. journey. Yeah. When I was on the ride and before the ride, I didn't call it around the world journey. Yeah, yeah. It's um, a bit easier. But yeah, That's, so, it's really yeah. interesting that the military in Australia will give you guys like unpaid time off like that. Cause in Canada I was reserves. Yeah. I was in the reserves for yeah. six, seven years, maybe. Yeah. Uh, my yeah. brother's reg force. My dad was reg force. Everybody in my family yeah. was military, but that is never an option. Like if you're uh, as a reservist, you could, cause you just go exempt drill and training yeah. and not, not as yeah. difficult, but as a reg force person, I don't yeah, think sort of after 10 years, we get something called um, long service leave. So you get three months of leave fully paid and you can take that on half pay. No, oh, yeah, okay. half pay. you can take that on half pay. <clears throat> And I had five months of leave, so I took that on half. Pay, oh, okay, gotcha. Got me, got me through my first year, and then I strategically wrote my letter to the army to ask for another year before they had allotted me to a job for the next year. Okay, so gotcha. They didn't, they didn't care where I was. Yeah, it's just if I'd been allotted to a job in August, then I would have had to have gone jumped through a whole pile of ringers. But yeah, 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 so yeah. it was really a really fortunate thing. Um, yeah, I don't hang around with army people that don't talk about the army the, the army i joined 25 years ago is a very different army to for, what exists now for sure um but but i really enjoyed my what my uh what year did you join uh 1997 okay i joined 99 so, yeah yeah so it was um yeah it was really good and back then we were all we were well we you know park rangers of the pacific region in the australian army we were doing humanitarian aid yeah, and, yeah. you know, nation building and all these things, which is, you know, a very different thing to what happens now. So I think I had a, had a really blessed time in the army. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Nowadays, uh, the Canadian army is definitely way different. Like they just finally yeah. passed like a game changing policy that yeah. says, you know, you can have your hair however you want. You can have, yeah, yeah, you yeah. can have face tattoos. You yep. can have you can have plugs in your ears. They don't yeah. care so long as it doesn't affect your mission capabilities. So, yeah, if you go on tour, then you might have to shave your beard because of gas yeah. masks and stuff. And yeah, 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 yeah. Like if you're not necessarily on tour, but if you're in a war situation, right? So yeah, yeah, um, yeah. They've just decided that like we're we're eliminating so many people from joining because of these strict ass rules, yeah. and it's like, what's the purpose? You know? Yeah. Yeah. No, it's funny. I mean, generations um, have issues integrating with the next generation of people, and I, you know, it's very different. The traditions are leaving um, the military, but that's not for the worse. There's a lot of uh, more open thinking and free thinking mm -hmm. coming up with the younger people, and that's the same in mountain biking, in racing, in you know, gravel racing, and the how inclusive we're becoming and how we're um, working to get a lot more community built around what we call, a, some people call a sport, some people call a hobby. So I think 
you know, there's a lot of good things coming out of the changes. Um, and if it doesn't, you know, doesn't hurt anyone, doesn't affect anyone, everyone still gets their job done and still gets mm-hmm. to enjoy, or it still gets to enjoy a mountain bike race. Yeah. It's all for the better. So I should tell you that uh, I live in a town called Chelsea. Oh, there you go. Yeah. <laughs> uh, yeah. I, is there a brewery there? Chelsea Pub. All right. No, sorry. There's, there is, there, uh, there, well, sorry. Chelsea Pub is not I a brewery. There to, is there is I a brewery s- nearby, but it's, um, is it called Chelsea and Co.? Yeah, they've changed the name. Yeah, because I yeah. think I saw it at the bottle over here, the yeah, bottle yeah. shop, um, and I thought, oh, that's pretty cool. I forget yeah, so Chelsea, it's so. they were producing, like, so this company was they were making their beer through a different brewery at first yeah for a bunch of years and then i think in covid times that brewery either shut or anyways agreements fell apart so they just started their own brewery and it's uh, it's great yeah um last year at the canadian shield bikepacking summit we actually went there that evening and like everybody was just chilling around the fire drinking beer. right yeah 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 yeah. but like i haven't announced it yet this year the canadian 2024 summit was going to be changing locations yeah, and uh, it's gonna be pretty epic though. So it's, yeah, just keep on working on that. And no, I mean with all the travel we do, it's just amazing. If there's a town of more than fifty thousand people, almost you can almost guarantee there's a microbrewery or a yeah. nanobrewery or something. It yeah. really is the time of your life. So when I did the Tour Divide, I um, I think one of the only things I was sad about was that I was riding past all these breweries, and it was like I have to do this again, but do it slower. Yeah, and uh, I stopped at one. I stopped early one night. I can't remember. Was it Butte? Anyway, somewhere. And they had a brewery with a pizza, a, uh, yeah, pizza shop next door. And I was like, "That's it. I'm not going any further tonight." That's it. So, Thirty yeah. kilometers done, and I'm staying yeah, here. Exactly. <laughs> yeah. Um, so tell me, um, yeah, like tell us about your your first bike. Uh, you know, it's always interesting to hear how people learn on the go with touring by the way i read your article you just posted on bikepacking.com we can talk about that later as well yeah uh but you know i find it really interesting how when people start bike touring you know i mean the learning curve is just it's like yeah almost straight up you know like it doesn't take maybe in that first mile you've already learned enough that you would change dozens of things you know yeah well i mean like i just said we're we're blessed at the moment to have breweries everywhere but we're also blessed to have almost every niche in cycling filled by at least five different bikes mm-hmm. and when i started <laughs> when i started uh so in 2008 or 9 you know i started doing longer distance cycling and trying uh, you know the, my first bike packing trip i carried a pack on my back which as we all know is crazy um and started developing what i wanted out of a bike and the roll off was always my go-to for long distance stuff. I call it the single speed, the geared single speed because it's basically a single speed. It's just, you have gears. Yeah. All the simplicity and the reliability is there. And so I, I decided that um, at the time, I think 29ers were sort of, you know, relatively new. And I contacted a guy in Tasmania to get, to make a custom frame for me that was going to fit 2.1 inch tires, which was huge at the time. Yeah, it's massive. And a, and a roll off. And there wasn't anything on the market that was made for that at the time. That's wild. Um, and, you know, and then very soon afterwards, so the um, South Safago came out commercially. Yeah. Which is exactly what basically I had someone make for me. And then the same thing happened in 2016. I wanted to 
uh, wanted a bike packing bike and I wanted it to have a roll off, so a long distance one, because I, I bike pack single speed, but I wanted mm-hmm. the ability to put the roll off on for longer distances. And I um, couldn't find anything that fitted 27 by three inch tires because I sort of knew in the back of my mind that a 27 by three is a 29, um, the circumference of a 29 inch wheel. So all the geometry would be the same that you would have far better handling and and grip and uh, uh, trail smoothing properties. Nothing existed at the time. So I had a company in Russia um, owned by an Israeli guy that they made titanium frames called Triton. Are they Russian? Is it Russian? I didn't know that. It used to be Russian and now they're Portuguese. Okay. Okay. So yeah. When, when the Russian thing happened, he told all his workers to shut, shut up shop and um, they moved to Portugal. But yeah, so I had him build a frame, which then, you know, how many frames out there have sliding dropouts or eccentric bottom brackets that fit 27 plus wheels now? Millions yeah, yeah. of them. But I couldn't buy a yeah, single I say, one at both, the time. Both so. of my mountain bike frames have. Yeah, sliding dropouts and, exactly yeah and can fit like so, yeah, um, three inches for sure yeah so that happened so that was sort of my second iteration of long distance uh bikes and that's the one i raced all of my bike packing races on so the tour divide and a heap of races in australia absolutely flawless um and then we decided that so i met chelsea in 2014 right. she um uh, was she bike touring at the same time as well yeah yeah we were yeah. both bike touring so um so she came back to Australia, got her citizenship, and we decided to move to Canada. And if you're both unemployed, you may as well make the most of that period of time because you know it's not very often that um, a husband and wife are both unemployed at the same time. Mm-hmm. So we decided to do a, a world trip. Um, COVID hit, that put everything on hold. Um, but then that gave us a bit of time to sort of look at what options there were for bikes. And the Tumbleweed Prospector came up. Yeah, my Luckily, buddy's, my buddy's time, riding one of those, yeah. Yeah, luckily this time I didn't have to custom build this thing. And what we loved about it was the fact that it's specifically made for roll-off. It takes 27-plus tyres and it takes up to 3.8-inch, which we thought would be absolutely brilliant for once we got to Canada because then we could put larger tyres on for mm-hmm. um, you know, uh, better better snow, like more hard-packed days on the snow. Um, so that's sort of how we evolved to that. And then, yeah, if anyone gets the time to read the article I just put on bikepacking.com, everything evolved to combine our touring bikes and bikepacking bikes into this mothership of sort of lightweight touring and what I call overlanding. And, um, yeah, so we're just lucky that this bike existed and it, it was absolutely flawless for the 7,000, uh, for the 10,000 kilometer mm-hmm. trip we just undertook from. Scotland to Turkey and um, yeah so I guess that's sort of the, the story of the the long distance bikes um, well like, I have no more questions so thank you for your yeah. time <laughs> <laughs> my, um, my my racing bikes I've always raced single speed single speed 29 yeah, yeah. so I was racing <clears throat> I was riding single speeds before 29 I sort of took off and I was riding 26 inch wheels yeah, and I was riding a dual suspension bike with 26-inch wheels and having trouble uh, doing technical climbs. Then I bought a 29er single speed and I was cleaning those climbs first go because of the ability to roll over objects. And yeah, yeah. The contact patch was bigger. Everything just worked better for what for me personally. 
So I was an early adopter of 29ers. Um, and so I had a Ventana from uh, an American company called Ventana. So that they were an early adopter as well. And again, that was sort of the only bike I could get with an eccentric yeah, bottom yeah. bracket that took 29ers at the time. But now if I ride that, I have to ride it as a commuter because it doesn't take anything bigger than about 20, 2.1 inches. Like you can't fit anything bigger. I've had yeah, to yeah. cut the cut the tread knobs off the sides of tires to fit the fatter tires. Oh, okay, wow. And, you know, that's yeah. just a 2006 bike. So, yeah, I got uh, my... Yeah, pretty amazing. I got my I BMC uh, Team Elite yeah. or something or another. Uh, yeah, yeah, 2011 yeah. or 12, 2012. And that was like my first bike. And I had a 29er. Yep. And I shit you not, even in 2012, how many friends were like, oh, no, yeah. man, you don't want a 29. That's really bad. Oh, no. And this, yeah. like, and my buddy, he was getting this information from his friend who was a pro racer and he was telling me not yeah. to use a 29er. And then, like, a year later, his buddy's racing 29ers. Oh, you know? yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. I find it really interesting because my my new bike, the Panorama Taiga, has, uh, I yeah. put on some sweet front suspension. Yeah. And, you know, you get a bit of a weight penalty, but. And, you know, a lot of times when you climb, you lock it out. But when yeah. you climb something that's a little bit rough, man, if you leave yeah. it, like, semi-unlocked, yep. you just, oh, yeah. you, you're like a mountain goat. You never lose yep. traction. Uh, yep. You always have some downward force, even when you bounce over a rock, because yeah. it's the yeah. way the yeah. suspension just feeds it, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. So it's been pretty uh, impressive, like, just with a bike that I've used for bikepacking to all of a sudden yeah. just have this ability to... Yeah grip on crazy climbs right? absolutely yeah so i've got friends who are who swear <clears throat> swear by 29 plus for bikepacking because you're literally just monster trucking over everything and i was a bit skeptical because obviously you know the whole geometry of your bike sort of has to change fitting racks or whatever you want thing things change you can adapt to those but that's fine then you've got the weight and all these sorts of things that we just arrived in canada and realized that you know, it was a bit of wishful thinking that we were going to get around on 3.8-inch mm. tyres once it starts snowing. And on top of that, 3.8-inch tyres don't really exist anymore. They, they were a thing for a little while. Yeah, yeah. But I think there's only one or two out there now. Some of the early looking. fat bikes, right? Early yeah. fat bikes were like 3.8. And you're like, really? That's yeah. it? Like, And so there was some 27 by 3.8s for a while, but there's only one or two out there now. And so I just started looking around at the market and ended up... Um, luckily getting an ambassadorship with rsd or rubber side down um, oh, over your okay. your side of uh, canada yeah they're in toronto right something like yeah, that and yeah they have a bike called uh the sergeant which i was looking it up after i saw your, yeah, your post one of the clinches for me was that it still has an 83 mil bottom bracket so your q factor isn't huge mm -hmm. but they made it to fit 27 by four inch tires so the adventure version of it comes with a rigid fork with bolt, bolt holes and everything on it but the tires i think might get us through um a, an edmonton winter on packed trails how, how big are the uh, tires on it so they're they're 27 by four okay okay and, gotcha and so that's why that's why i'm mentioning it because my friends who run 29 by three inch i mm -hmm. always thought you know that's a massive tire so now i'm riding a 27 by four which is about the same and i just rode some extremely steep trails I'm a single speeder, but this bike came with a 50 something rear cassette, put it in the bottom gear. I just churned up a, the steepest thing I've ever ridden in my life. Oh, wow. So, um, yeah, this, you know, this is, I think we've spoken, um, yeah. uh, uh, on Instagram to each other, just DMing about, you know, how there, there's so many 
niches out there that a lot of people don't appreciate or don't have experience in to make a judgment about. Yeah. And you, it, you know, not everyone can ride every bike, but I think it's it's a really hard call to sort of I try. discriminate. I, I try. <laughs> yeah, try I even got a recumbent against... bike recently because I'm like, I really wanted to try riding a recumbent, yeah. so I managed to pick it exactly. up cheap. I rode it All a small bikes. ride. I'll ride it more in the spring yeah. once I have time to really yeah. focus on developing some skill on it. But uh, yeah. You know, no, my, my touring bike is a folding bike, and then I got yeah. my, and I have my gravel mountain bike, and yeah. my gravel bike, mountain bike, fat bike. Yeah, it's a little ridiculous. So, it's a good thing I have a double car garage, you know. Well, as, yeah, and as long as you <laughs> ride them, so you know, I hate seeing, hate yeah, seeing yeah. people's bikes get dusty, but I think, um, yeah, there's a lot of us out there who will either underbike or overbike for the fun of it. So you might take the wrong bike out on on one day just for the fun of it. So mm-hmm. um, rather than being anal about, you know weight weenie and trying to get the right tire width and tread for that day who cares just go out and have fun and yeah you might actually learn um so yeah i mean a lot of people ask me for advice about you know their bike build and i'm like their first bike build and i'm sort of pointing them in the direction of something like a karate monkey stock and they'll quickly learn that the the dirt wizards i think the tires on there are one of the worst tires ever made for everyday riding but they'll learn from that yeah. And they'll learn from the stem being something. And they'll learn from all these things. You can't sort of build a bike and hope it's going to be perfect from yeah. day one. So let me and ask. It's, a, it's definitely a first world problem. And, you yeah. know, not everyone's lucky enough to, yeah. to make mistakes and spend money and buy parts. But yeah, I know uh, I, when yeah. people say like, oh, what bike should I tour with? Whatever bike you have. And I'm like, ah, oh, yeah. that's just such the easy answer. Like it's a cop yeah. out to like just saying, get on your bike and go. But yeah. I'm like, if you really want to know, I'll give you a deep answer. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> but I'm going to have to probably ask you 20 questions to figure out what you like, you know? Yeah. yeah and so yeah, for yeah. you, um, your first like real tour would have been in Tasmania. Is that right? Yeah. Kind of? Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. And, and maybe some shakedown rides beforehand kind of thing. Yeah. So I did, um, oh, actually, what year? No, no, it was Tasmania. Yeah. So that was an off-road route on a mountain bike um, with nothing but large rear panniers like touring panniers and a front touring bag that connected to your handlebar mm-hmm. and then um i actually did a touring trip in japan so i rode around hokkaido which is a northern island of yeah, japan yeah. um i just put slicks on that and went over with a mate and we had a really good time i i, I often recommend japan as a foreign country for people who want to experience touring for the first time. It's yeah, so, really it's great, so, so, yeah. yeah. Amazing. Um, yeah. So, yeah, that was the second time. So that was sort of the first time was a wilderness ride. The second time was a, more of a touring. Mm-hmm. You know, so there was those two aspects within a year or two of each other. And, and how was, um, you know, what did you pick up off of the packing aspect? You know, if you're first ride, I think everybody packs way too much. Yeah. You were going off-road, so maybe you were much more cognizant of that and, you know, you you really spent some time reading stuff and like, no, no, I got to take almost nothing or like, how did that work out for you? It's actually funny because I've listened to a lot of podcasts uh, with bikepackers that have RX military. So um, it's funny how you pick up things from, you know, your place of work. And yeah. so I just knew, I just... In, yeah, knew what to put in my panniers That's to so go. True. I never even um, thought of it that way. Yeah, yeah, though it was heavy, and you know, I definitely wasn't um, buying anything expensive or new. So it was, 
it wasn't army stuff, but it was just this normal everyday things that a normal person could just go to the local hiking store and buy. Mm-hmm. Um, not like these days where, you know, everything's state of the art. And so, yeah, I took those things, but also was wise enough to know um, because the weather in Tasmania can turn. I had a 37 degree day and I had sleet all within a five day period and enormous headwinds. Wow. And I had beautiful weather as well. So, you have everything. So I was wise enough to make sure the route had a fallback plans, which is just staying upstairs in a pub. Mm-hmm. So in Australia, we have pubs and there's always rooms upstairs, almost always. Oh, yeah. um, and you can just stop, have a dinner, have a beer and get a room for 60 bucks or whatever back in the okay. days. Back, I say back in the day because it was 14 years 10 ago. 10 years ago. Let me <laughs> <years ago. laughs> um, So, yeah, so... Uh, it wasn't extreme, extremely arduous or out in the wilderness <clears throat> as such, but it was an off-road route at the time. So it was okay. a really good introduction, a really good introduction yeah. to that kind of thing. Yeah. Yeah. I think that military aspect plays a lot more into things than I ever really gave it credit for. Cause like you just yeah. mentioned, like, you know, me being in a bivy bag and putting up a lean to as a shelter is yeah. nothing unusual. No. And no. where a normal Joe Blow would have been like, this is huge, you know, this is such yeah. a big learning curve, but we just take it for granted because it's something yeah. that was uh, pushing. And the mindset, the mindset of just pushing, like just, you know, you just don't stop. It doesn't enter your mind that you're going to fail, even if you are. Like, it's just you're going to go until you can't go anymore. Yeah. <laughs> so that's a... Uh, um, and then if you have a sergeant behind you, you'll probably keep going yeah. for a while longer. <laughs> yeah. So, um, no, no. So that, that was sort of how I initially got into things. And then um, definitely spent some money to buy some lighter weight gear to start my trip, my two year journey, That was what ended up being a two year journey. Mm. But at the same time, I mean, I was wearing clip, clipless shoes, so SPD shoes and carried another pair of shoes. You yeah, know, I, I carried <laughs> blue. Yeah, I carried blue jeans. You know, I carried yep, yep. another pair of pants. I carried two button-up shirts that I could go out at night. And and it's partially because I was traveling to experience cultures, mm-hmm. not exactly to experience yeah, yeah, wilderness. Yeah. When I was on the touring bike, and so you look at the things. You know, my people would watch me set up camp, and then you know, watch me pull out my co- little stovetop espresso maker and make a coffee in the morning, and just be like where is all this stuff coming from? Yeah, yeah. And, and of course, this time around on our bikepacking bikes for this trip we just did, completely different thing again. Yeah. So, uh, before, um, before we jump in on that, uh, we'll save that for a little bit yeah. later. I wanted yeah, yeah, to, yeah. Uh, you know, you were a racer. You did, you know, um, road bike racing. You did yeah. velodrome, uh, you know, that kind of stuff. Yeah. Um, when you started your bike tour, did you find it hard to slow down? Oh, yeah. It's um, I, I will jump. Or ahead did you right slow now. down? <laughs> yeah, I'll actually jump ahead right now because sure. what the issue we had on this trip was that we started in Scotland on bikepacking bikes, but we these were you know heavily packed bikepacking bikes, and we were trying to do the same distances we were doing on our normal bikepacking bikes back in Australia, so maybe a hundred kilometers or one hundred fifty or two hundred whatever in a day, and that was weighing on our minds heavily mm. until we realized oh that's right we can do 50 a day and still we're still riding for six hours because we're literally pushing our bikes up and down mountains and yeah stopping at a you know a bakery and doing all these things and seeing things and talking to people and that's 
are a huge battle at the start of every trip um, that you do when you don't have uh, you know a yeah. time frame to meet. Getting that into your mind that you don't have an aim, you don't have an end state, an end place. You can you know be the the master of your own destiny for every day and every week. Mm-hmm. It's so hard. It seems like the easiest thing to do to just let go, but. You know, when we're right, you start looking at the map and you're like, oh, we're only so far from this town. Maybe we can make it. We can have that fish and chips or pint or whatever, right? It sounds terrible, but even social media, you're sort of thinking, what are people going to think if we're going to do 50 kilometers today? You know, and no one's thinking that. No one cares. If you don't care, nobody else cares. You just got to, yeah. yeah, yeah. yeah. And no one's keeping track. They're just, you know, having a look at some photos. And so, yeah, it's a, a real difficult one. So on that trip, um, you know, I was still wearing, uh, I was wearing shorts with lycra underneath and a lycra jersey, on oh, no, a woolen jersey, but it was a cycling jersey. Right. And so I was still wearing sort of cycling things, you know, like racing attire and stuff. And so getting out of that mindset, um, it, yeah, is difficult when, mm-hmm. when that's what you're doing in the real world. So the real world, I shouldn't call yeah. it the real world, in the other world. So, yeah. Yeah. I find, um, yeah, if I'm wearing like cycling shorts and yeah. jersey and then I'm, you know, I was traveling, I did like Western Canada and all the yeah. way to Winnipeg basically. And I always feel just slightly awkward walking into a shop and stuff because like, I don't feel like I'm on a road bike road, yeah. like ride where I'm with a crew yeah. and, you know, yeah. and, but I feel like I'm traveling, but at the same time I feel so underdressed or out of, out of, out of the ordinary, it's, you know? It's it's funny. Like I was riding just outside of Canberra where we used to live with a mate and I was in my normal button-up shirt and shorts and I arrived at the pub maybe five minutes before him, grabbed a beer and all these tradies, we call them tradies in Australia, yeah. tradesmen just standing there um, and they just started talking to me, asking me where I'd come from and everything and then he turned up in Lycra. They stopped talking to me completely and just went off and did their own thing and I'm thinking, you know, it's a, it's a really weird, it's an outgroup thing. You know, mm-hmm. that's why cars sort of uh, often get angry at cyclists and things because they just, it's a scientific fact that we're regarded as an outgroup. But I think wearing, um, yeah, clothes that uh, don't create a barrier to any form of empathy, you know, so that people can empathize with you is a, is a weird aspect, but it's genuine. Like, yeah, it really makes a difference. Yeah. So, yeah, yeah I find um, like I mean I still wear cycling shorts, but now I tend to wear more often like a mountain bike style jersey yep. shirt, whatever. Yeah, uh, whether it's Seven Mesh or any yeah. other brand, it doesn't matter. Like it's just yeah. you know it gives you that little bit of a loose factor. Yeah, you don't worry yeah, about the yeah. pockets and being stuffed with bananas and tool bags and stuff. Yeah, and I mean that's another thing. So I I, I make with my sewing, I make uh, fanny packs or hip bags or waist bags, whatever people want to call them, and. That was a, a bit of a revolution in itself because then I just stopped needing those back pockets. Mm-hmm. I was carrying all the things in there. I was able to get my camera out of there and then that, that prevents you from wearing a, a cycling jersey anyway because you can't use those pockets. So that was a bit of a, an evolution in itself. Yeah. So. Before continuing on with the show, I'd like to thank Panorama Cycles for sponsoring this podcast. Panorama Cycles is a bicycle manufacturer in Quebec, Canada, dedicated to backcountry cyclists that prefer gravel, snow, and off-road trails. 
They believe cycling is a catalyst for adventures of all sizes, and that there's no need to travel across the world or to be a seasoned athlete to live epic outdoor adventures. Over the past year, I've been riding the Chick Shocks Fat Bike, the Katadin Gravel Bike, and the Taiga Mountain Bike. From everyday rides, bikepacking trips, and a multitude of races and events, these bikes have put a huge smile on my face every step of the way, while also getting me on the podium on the Wendigo Ultra Fat Bike Race and helped me set an FKT on the Canadian Shield 400. In partnering up with the Bikepack Adventures podcast, Panorama Cycles also wants to give back to the cycling community, particularly you, the listeners of the podcast. By using the promo code BPA10 when purchasing a new bike from PanoramaCycles.com, you'll save 10%. For more information on their environmental commitments or to check out their bikes, head to PanoramaCycles.com. Now back to the show. It all happens over time. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So on that first tour, were you uh, were you pushing bigger mileage like then, like in you know that two year yeah. tour? You were, you were like oh, you were hammering out big days. Yeah. So I mean, what. Well- a, a normal day for me would be, you know, getting up at 7.30 or 8 o'clock with, you know, just casually getting up, having a nice breakfast or whatever, and um, and then starting at 9, 9.30, maybe 10, which is very late, but mm-hmm. around 9. And then six hours of riding would sort of get you to 3 o'clock where you could start planning where you were going to stop more, with more certainty than you had in mm-hmm. the morning. Then I would aim to sort of get to uh, the town that I was staying in by 4, 4.30. You'd find accommodation, put up your tent, do whatever, and then go for a walk around town. So even Chelsea and I now, we never ride our bikes when we're not using them for transport. Okay. Like long distance. So we'll stop somewhere and we will not touch the bike. So everyone's always like, oh, there's a beautiful view up here or you can ride to this place. And we just never touch them because walking really helps loosen uh, your muscles after a day of mm-hmm. sitting on the bike, especially if you're living on them every day. Yeah. <clears throat> so, so that was sort of um, my daily routine. Um, and in those six hours or seven or eight hours, I could do up to uh, 200 kilometers with a fully laden bike. Oh, so wow. You're 40, really giving her. Yeah. 40 kilos. Yeah. On, on a long day. So, you know, one of the days mm-hmm. I, I, I smashed it through Serbia and it was on highway the whole day because I had sort of a timing to sort of meet. Plus, there was almost a wasteland through the middle of uh, Serbia at that stage. And, um, yeah, and then other days we were in Bolivia or in the Bolivian Altiplano and we did, I think, 17 kilometers one day, <laughs> you know, so it depends on everything. Um, yeah. so many factors so that's at 4,000 metres above sea level you have very little oxygen you can't stand up and pedal because your muscles shut down it was freezing like below okay. you know, 10, 10 degrees minus 10 in the shade and the most corrugated and rutted roads you've ever seen we did 17 kilometres so on the same bikes exactly the same bikes yeah. so yeah it's all one of those things this but, was on you had the tumbleweed at this time no, no, that was the the custom made. Oh um, yeah, yeah, yeah. That's right. Uh, bike from Tasmania. So <clears throat> his name was Tim Smith, and his his bike brand was Velo Smith. So he he was a, a big maker of normal touring bikes. But I just asked him to put two point one inch tires on yeah, there, yeah. which is why we were able to do uh, a lot of the South American off well not off road routes but dirt road routes, especially through the Bolivian Altiplano, um, which was yeah sensational. But I think now you wouldn't see a touring bike on it, I, I would assume. You would probably see bikepacking bikes because it's a probably a, 
a more intelligent choice. Yeah, yeah. But, um, and it seems okay. a lot of a lot of companies are stopping to produce the traditional touring bike. Yes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So I mean now a twenty nine <laughs> mountain bike, as we sort of talked about at the start of the podcast, is <clears throat> a, a bit of a, a bit of a do it all bike, you know. So yeah. you, you can just fit skinnier tires um and do one thing and then fit mountain bike tires and do the other and yeah. you can have rack mounts and never use them or you can leave racks on there permanently but all these bikes come with these things already. Yeah, gravel bikes um, now are kind of the new touring bike in a sense. Or yeah. it's hard to say, right? Like, because yeah. they have a lot of eyelets and they're set up that you can yeah. just kind of put yep. for, racks right yep. on them. Yeah, exactly. And the, but mountain bikes yeah. are the same, so it's really cool. Like, yeah. yeah, yeah. Particularly if it's a company that makes a bike for that reason, right? Like, um, yes, yeah. You know, it's you know, like you said, salsa and, and panorama yeah. too, like their mountain bikes are made to support that where yeah. I don't know, some other mountain bike companies might not because they're yeah. just a more traditional mountain bike. Yes. You know? Yeah. 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 How was, uh, so when you met, uh, you met Chelsea and on a ferry to Scotland and stuff, like how long was she planning to travel for? Did she like, did she adjust or are you adjusted to her? How did that work out? She, she was actually doing a mixed trip. So she was, um, uh, backpacking and cycling. So she figured out that you could actually hire touring bikes at the time. So in Tasmania, she flew to Tasmania and hired a touring bike and literally emptied her backpack into the panniers left the backpack at the bike hire place, oh, rode yeah? the bike for however many weeks, and then put her stuff back in her backpack and flew to Antarctica or wherever she went. And then when she got to Scotland, she did the same thing. She found this little shop, emptied her backpack into the panniers, started riding, and we ended up being catching the same ferry to the Outer Hebrides. Um, and so we got to know each other and ended up riding together. We didn't agree to anything. We just kept going in the same direction. Mm -hmm. And eventually she obviously had to go back and return the bike. Um, so she flew back to Scotland, returned the bike. I continued through um, France and Spain and Portugal. And then I flew to Edmonton for Christmas. Oh, okay. Because it was obviously yeah, going to yeah. be winter there. So I got to Edmonton um, and built her a Salsa Fargo, which was basically the same bike as my custom made. Yeah, um, yeah, at a fraction of the price. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. So we built her a Salsa Fargo at Christmas time. Then we flew to Chile, South America, and started the second year of travel. Oh, okay, so gotcha. That, yeah. And at the end, so we did, um, we did uh, Chile, Bolivia, Peru, Eastern Canada. So we landed in Toronto and finished at St. John. Um, then had a short break back here in Edmonton and then flew to New Zealand, did the full length of New Zealand, then flew to Sydney and rode, uh, in Australia and rode from Sydney to Adelaide, which is about uh, sort of the way we did it was about 2,000 kilometres, um, and then finished up. So then we lived in Australia for seven years. So, yeah, she just she, she arrived in Australia with everything she owned on oh, her bike. Oh, Jesus. <laughs> so, Imagine. Well, I'm doing that now, so I'm, yeah, I'm yeah. Right and were you uh, you were still in the military for a while, like until you finished your, your pension yeah, now, or what? Yeah. Um, so I was uh, more of a. So I spent my majority of my career in what we call the Green Army, which is when you're out and about with soldiers and doing things. Okay. Um, what trade were you, or what was your? Uh, I was in logistics. logistics so I worked okay. on. Yep. I worked yep. on boats for a period, so landing craft. So that was you know, one of the hidden secrets of, of the Australian army as a, one of the best jobs around. 
and in movements, which sort of moved stuff all around the mm. world um, for various reasons. Then I did a master's in project management, ended up sort of being in, a, in more office jobs doing procurement and things like that. So I got back from this trip and sort of settled into a more um, normal lifestyle, I should say, mm. um, uh, for the seven years we were there. And then, uh, So you're looking for a job yeah, in project yeah. management? I might have uh, my wife could talk to you. Yeah, and uh, I just I don't know if I can. <laughs> like, I didn't. I joined the army because I didn't want to work in an office. I ended up working yeah, yeah, in an exactly. office. Yeah, <laughs> And now I, that's because you became an officer. Of, you know? Yeah, I know. <laughs> it's shiny bump. Yeah. Um, so I think I, because I've never had a job, I joined the army when I was seven, three months. I, I might do those things that I always wondered what they'll be like and see if they're a novelty or not. So get a, you know, a job in a bike shop. Um, my sewing, my little small business in sewing is, I can't, you know, make enough stuff. The demand is huge for bike packing yeah. gear at the moment. And it's still going um, crazy, which is like, I, yeah. I thought the market would have been a little bit saturated by now because a lot yeah. of new businesses start up. Well, a lot of people start producing and, it, but I don't feel like One of like the best is. things is it wears out, you know? Yeah. So it's, that's handy and people buy new bikes and, and people appreciate yeah, yeah. not only the craftsmanship and the fact that they can choose their own colors, but they appreciate it being built to funct, form um, form over function. So, sorry, function over form. So you're getting a lot more um, versatility out of the item you buy. You know, if, if Revelate or any of the big brands make a saddlebag, they have to make it over-engineered so that, you know, they don't know what someone's going to do to it. But if you tell me what you want to do with it, I can make you a saddlebag that has no structure to it because all you're putting in is a, is a puffer jacket and yeah. some light things, you know, and that weighs less and works better and all that doesn't mm. sway and all these things. So I think that's where people are where people are arriving at, at with their opinions on, you know, buying yeah, and stuff. Yeah. So, so that's one of the things I might do, you know, or, you know, go and work at a cafe and, you know, do all those things. Just and you do have, that for a while. And you have things that might not fit something. I know like my first yeah. set of bikepacking bags, I've got these uh, Blackburn, yeah. the, the Outpost Elite set. Yep. Uh, I mean, I was, you know, same thing, an ambassador, partially sponsored. Uh, I got good deals. Yep. And then I brought my Brooks saddle and I was like, oh, this yeah this this harness system for this saddlebag doesn't fit yeah. my bike no, no no so i was at my dad's house he's like well let's take some steel and let's make a new adapter and let's yeah. so we started cutting and banging and drilling and yeah. we made a it wasn't lightweight i mean it was yeah. as light as we could make it probably could have been made lighter yeah. but yeah, using yeah, the materials yeah. at hand and and it worked for a long time yep. did a lot of trips with yeah, it yeah. and uh yeah. you know but it it wasn't made fit to form yeah. So it was, you know, generic and it's not yeah. always going to work with your bike. And when yeah, you change yeah, bikes yeah. and the bike frame bag doesn't fit anymore and you're like, oh, this sucks. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, yeah. No. I, and I have weird requests. So I had, had one lady request that I make a bag that she could put a parrot in. So it had a plastic, clear plastic front on it and things like that. You know, there's some odd things out there and they don't, That's they don't exist. Yeah. So, <laughs> um, all sorts of stuff. Yeah. How did, um, how did you find it? Like, I mean, I, I presume you cycled across places that you rode 2014 and then you guys did, you and Chelsea did on yeah. this past trip. Yeah. How did you find things had changed in like, I guess the post COVID world or, or just in yeah. general, like development oh, and there, stuff in the East Europe. And there's so much that's changed and there's two factors to that on the touring bike. You're in bigger towns. You're uh, yeah. You're not necessarily being able to, interact with humans all the time because they're flying by you in cars and things 
and there's more English speakers in towns that are on highways and blah, blah, blah. And then on the bikepacking bikes, we would go, you know, for up to three or four days without speaking to English to anyone. You're dealing with shops that are not very well stocked and you're dealing with generally low, lower socioeconomic um, uh, communities, I guess, in the small towns, some of them still trying to be subsistence, etc. So there's those factors which are are not to do with the, the 10 years between the two rides. Mm-hmm. But then the thing I did notice in the 10 years between the two rides is the astronomically large amount of traffic. So every single person of driving age has a car, you know, right. and it's, it's insane. So a lot of these places, you know, aren't built to have that many cars. Um, plastic rubbish is not biodegradable and in certain countries, they'll literally leave their house, drive up the road one kilometre, dump it into a stream, upstream from the village, by the way, and it'll <laughs> sit there. And there's that. And then um, the huge discrepancies between uh, the rich and the poor. So yeah. you'll be riding past a 90-year-old man pulling a cow across the road and someone will fly down the road in a black SUV and just with a hand on their horn you know, trying to get him out of the way. And these are things that you didn't really, really see or notice when I, I travelled 10 years ago. Of course, they were there. Yeah, yeah. But it's um, significantly different. And then the effects of mass tourism. And that's a tricky one to talk about. And, because, this, and it, particularly, yeah. like, I guess, since last year, things have gone nuts, man. Everybody yeah, yeah, is travelling. Exactly, you know? exactly. So I mean, I was in know, Turkey hard. just before you got there, you know? Yeah, so. yeah. It's hard for us to say, you know, anything uh, about mass tourism when we are technically tourists, but I think there's a difference between a traveller and a tourist, and I could go into that, but I won't. Um, and, yeah, so we were, luckily, you know, these these tourist traps and mass tourism attractions, once you are five or ten kilometres from them, you don't see a single yeah, yeah. tourist anymore. So that was lucky for us, you know. Occasionally we appreciated these places existing because we could speak to someone in English and get a hamburger or a pizza. Mm-hmm. And then um, five kilometers later, we're back out in the middle of nowhere. Um, but I feel like the, on this the, this trip, you probably noticed a lot of change in Turkey because, like, I, it was yeah. my first time in Turkey. Yeah. And my wife had been there a couple of times. Her sisters have been there lots. My wife's Iranian, yeah. right? I think you probably know yeah. that. Yeah, yeah. And, yeah. Um, you know, where previously they said Turkey was so great. Everything, you know, everything is phenomenal and Turkey is really phenomenal. But Uh, I found really, man, everybody was trying to get the last dollar they can out of you, you know, like everything was to get a bit of money because their economy is so shitty right now. They have no, like they're doing what they got to do to survive. You're trying to keep your trip to an affordable means. And like, you know, we spent thousands and thousands and you're like, every time they're trying to, get another dollar out of you yeah. like, oh eeks out of you you know well you look at just look, just jump on Airbnb and scroll over to Istanbul and just oh, look at nuts. how many Airbnbs there are and that's not and helping the, the locals yeah that's not helping the locals live in their own city yeah each one of those apartments is empty at the moment because well it's peak season at the moment but when it's not peak season those apartments are still empty and people now have to commute further yeah. and to get to their jobs and all these things and and that's another thing we noticed yeah with the mass tourism people all of these beautiful little villages are being gentrified um and yeah the, the locals are being kicked out so mm-hmm. it's hard to find that genuine experience anymore and you know we would love to eat 
every local delicacy we could as we traveled the 10,000 kilometers, but you can't afford it because mm. it's not created. It's not made unless you find a little old nonna somewhere who's going to make it for you, which is happens on occasion, but you can't like knock on their door and ask them for it. So, yeah. so many places we never ate any of the, you know, the local delicacies because it's all, uh, all tourist price now and yeah, you yeah. can't blame them, you know, that's getting them by, but, um, you know, who knows what's going to happen with tourism in the future. And, these towns that are just uh, sprouting up with high-rise uh, accommodation for tourists, you know, what's going to mm-hmm. happen to them if the, the boom? Yeah. Uh, Can, oh, I, mean, I mean, here in Canada, we complain pretty hard if the price of gas changes by 10 yeah. cents. And when we yeah. arrived in Turkey, the day before we arrived there, it was like 50 cents a liter. When we arrived, yeah. it was like $1.50 a liter, you know, roughly yeah. US, US or Euro yeah. equivalent or whatever. It was, yeah, yeah, it was yeah. nuts. Yeah. And people like, you know, they were ready to yeah. murder somebody because it was awful, yeah. awful. Yeah. Um, hold on. I'm going to pause for a second. I need to go to the washroom. I'll do the same. All right. That was refreshing. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah. Let's let's talk about your most recent tour, um, your yep. pre-Canada tour. You, you mentioned the Tumbleweed Prospector, right? And yep. did you guys both have Tumbleweed Prospectors or... Uh, well, yes, yeah, we did. So Chelsea originally got one uh, a while back, and I can't remember the reason why. But as I was assembling it, I um, I just thought this is the most well designed thing for what we want to be doing. But I already had my, you know, my custom titanium yeah, bike. Yeah. Um, so I set hers up, and then um, we came to Canada and did a loop that I created called the Six Ferries Loop, which started in Sydney in a, on Vancouver Island, went all the way up to Comox, jumped across to the Sunshine Coast and came down all the single track all the way down to the uh, Vancouver and then almost to Vancouver and then back across to Sydney. Did this trip in 14 days. <laughs> Got to, flew back to Edmonton to be with Chelsea's parents and we went for a ride locally and I heard this clicking, couldn't figure it out, got home and saw that I'd snapped the um, the down tube clear across it just behind the head tube. Um, you know, because this bike, it's super lightweight titanium thing and it's not mm-hmm. the bike's fault. I used that thing to within an inch of its life, yeah, fully yeah. loaded for like five or well, six years. So that snapped and then that was like, well, okay. Um, I'll, I'll buy the same bike. So we bought a, uh, a tumbleweed. But I think, you know, the tumbleweed is so well designed that the triangle is so much bigger for a frame bag and all these things are mm. so well thought out. Like, so my titanium bike probably wasn't going to be the best thing for the trip anyway. So it's sort of um, a good thing. And the, the, the titanium frame is being repaired by Triton. No questions asked. They're super happy mm-hmm. that I've been riding it properly. Um, unlike a lot of, bikes they make that just end up hanging on someone's wall yeah yeah so um so yeah that's how we ended up both with the uh um, the tumbleweeds and i happened to get one during lockdown well during sort of heavy covid restrictions back in australia which gave me a really good opportunity to start designing that setup that we ended up riding Mm -hmm. so um front and rear racks but then small you know micro panniers and all of the bags and a crank tank water tank in the triangle and all these different things so um luckily we had a bit of time to do that because um yeah the guys at Camino cycles down in in melbourne in australia were just uh, really good friends and they got me a frame immediately and yeah it was great 
um, that Daniel uh, had designed this bike that's Tumbleweed, who we incidentally met when we were in Italy. He happened to be so the owner of Tumbleweed oh, wow. happened to be in Italy doing the Torino Nice Rally route, and we were they were doing it south in the southerly direction, which is the correct direction. We were doing it in the northerly direction, and we both ended up at the same campsite. So that couldn't have been a cooler thing. It's so karma, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. So that's but wild. Yes. Yeah, my Do buddy rides. Uh, my buddy rides Tumbleweed, and like it looks. Yeah. You know, he always talks about how comfortable it is, especially yeah. especially with um, you know his. I think he's using tail fin bags, but like all the yeah. micro panniers front and back, yeah. and you know, yeah. like it's he has his setup looks like it's burly, it's ready to take yeah. a beating, it's you know, it can do pretty much well, it's, anything. And it's funny because like with our touring bikes that we rode around the world with, if you took the panniers off, they were terrible. So they they were really well balanced with the panniers on them, and the panniers acted as damping for steering and for. Um, uh, trail chatter and then so I thought sort of the tumbleweeds would be the same but then we finished this trip took the bags off went and did the Alberta Mount, uh, bikepacking collective ride on Friday night completely unloaded and they rode excellent like absolutely brilliantly so the, it's a, just a really well mm. well thought out bike the tubing everything so we left the steel forks on there and yeah they weigh a ton um, but I know it's just going to be there forever. It's yeah, just going to be yeah. my bikepacking bike until I can't bikepack anymore and have to get an e-bike. So, yeah. yeah, yeah, it'll happen eventually, right? Um. <laughs> oh, yeah. Again, it's the time to be alive. I think by the time we yeah, need yeah. one, I think and, be and, and, and it's awesome that we can do that, right? Because like yeah. I had um, Jim and Mary Boat on the podcast, and yeah. they're in their 80s, and they're still yeah. touring yeah. everywhere, and they're uh, using e-bikes, and they... Yeah. They you charge and do slightly date shorter yeah. days. They find places to charge, and they're like, you know what? We can stop at a yeah. Tim Hortons for six hours and charge yeah. and use devices and do all this stuff. Yeah. And like, we were leapfrogging with so many um, older people in France. It wasn't even funny. They were all on e-bikes and just having a ball. You got it. Probably was uh, a bit funny, right? Like, yeah. Well, it, it got a bit <laughs> awkward. It did get a bit awkward. But they you keep know. passing you, and you're like, ah. Oh. <laughs> It's just bad because everyone sees the crank tank that I have. I don't know if the list. Yeah, there, I saw the a, picture. It's a, um, it's a plastic bottle that uh, fits inside part of your triangle, right. and you fill it with water. And it's it's one of it's made it's invented by a guy in Australia in South Australia. Oh, I didn't know it was Australian, and, but I've seen them. Yeah, there. absolutely brilliant. It keeps all your weight central, and it's always there. We even use it when it's freezing cold. You know, if you find a campsite that's not near a stream, you fill it up. Blah blah blah. Anyway, the problem with it is that it looks like a battery. So people didn't ask if we're on e-bikes. They mm. asked where we charge and, you know, or how much our bike You're like, H2O it. is good. Yeah, so I actually had to write water exclamation mark on it, which worked in the UK, but obviously didn't yeah, work yeah. in France. But it was, and then it you, was custom, you custom, you made your own bags to go right around it, yeah. right? Yeah. So that's why yeah. when I was looking, it's like, it's all fit so perfectly. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I didn't even need to strap it in; it just wedged in there, so it was really good. So, tell us a bit about your guys' setup um, for this past ten thousand kilometers. Um, yeah, micro panniers. Like, well, just I guess you can go through it and. Uh... Yeah, so um, I made some micro panniers for the front rack. Um, so, Tumbleweed make their own racks, uh, or sell their own racks, and they actually have bolt holes on them, so that yeah, can put those large cargo cables mm, onto the okay. rack. Kind of like Old Man Mountain has something similar. They yeah. Have, uh, so what I did 
was I made panniers that attached to the top rails by Velcro, but okay. then bolted on to those bolts. So they just had two bolts, which means that when they're on the front of your bike, they don't bounce around like crazy when you hit bumps. And um, I think you'd have to look at my photos to understand what I'm talking about, but they're, they're a rectangular bag. And then I cut a, an angular bottom on it so that you could still fit water bottles onto the forks. So oh, okay, sort of nice. Weird yeah, yeah. Shaped yeah. That's that that's bag. why that was so, like that. Okay. Yeah, and so the the front panniers were designed just to carry clothes. Um, so they're probably double the size of a a normal cargo dry bag that you would put on your fork. It probably holds double that amount. Mm-hmm. Um, and then I made uh, uh, liners for those panniers because they're an odd shape. It's actually easier to load the liner first and then slide it into the pannier because it's a weird shape. Yeah, and of course, if you went, if you'd stop at a hotel or something, you just grab the two liners and a couple of other things off the bike and walk up to the room. It was just like really handy, yeah. and they're uh, water added waterproof um, because when you make your own bags, that's pretty much the biggest problem with making your own bags or with cottage makers. We don't have the ability to um, weld uh, seams mm-hmm. or waterproof seams on a normal sewn seam. So there's a couple of people around that make their bags inside out so that the seams are actually on the outside and they put waterproof sealing into the seams as they do the binding, but that's just a completely different uh, aesthetic Mm. and a different uh, construction technique. Yeah, well, definitely we could probably jump into that in a a bag-making episode, which we might record. So I I, I made liners, which doubled as um, that sort of thing. So there was those front panniers, then rear panniers, I designed uh, the right-hand one to specifically be exactly the right size to hold uh, our three-man tent because mm. when you're traveling a long time, you always want yeah, an extra person's size inside the tent. So as I was saying earlier, you know, one of the best things about the cottage industry makers is that we can make what you need exactly to the right size, which is what I did. And then I mirrored it on the other side and that had all of my, uh, I call it like the bottom drawer in the kitchen. It just has all your crap in it you don't know where else to put it uh then yeah had a small bag on top of the um rear rack and so what a lot of people even i've noticed when i've done a lot of races bikepacking races you'll end up at a gas station with someone and they go in and they buy 60 dollars worth of supplies and then they can't put them anywhere so overflow is a huge thing that you actually have to think about when you're designing a bag it's not just to fit the tent so i would I add, you know, there was a bit of extra space there, and then the bag on top of the rear rack was sort of another. And the top space rear bag maybe is like a roll top, roll top, yeah, so you can kind a, of you can pack top. it a little higher if you need, yeah, right? Yep, yeah. yep. Yeah, so there was that, and then um, uh, yeah, two stem bags, and the stem bags I make are low profile, so they're not round; they're flat, they're rectangular. So mm. because I stand up a lot, being a, a single speeder. I need sort of knee clearance. So I made those and I made them exactly the length that went from the fork to the handlebar. Another reason to go custom because you see a lot of people when there's another couple of inches under their stem bag and it's like, well, you may as well use that space. You know, things Mm -hmm. like that are handy. Um, So that was that. And then I made a harness. The only bag I didn't make on the bike was the, uh, the handlebar roll that goes inside the handlebar harness. Yep. Because so I bought a Revelate one, which is seam welded, because that holds the sleeping bag and a puffer jacket. Ah, and, and so on that you want no compromise to, to no dryness. compromise yeah. whatsoever. So um, 
that so you're, way. You're saying then, the stuff you make isn't high enough quality. No, <laughs> yeah, no. <laughs> That's no, very fun, guys. Made, it's still you some time. <laughs> I've made a heap of bar rolls that I use yeah. out on a weekend, but I think if you travelled for a month with it, there's no way that my seam ceiling would hold up, and neither would the fabric. Yeah. So, um, yeah, so that was brilliant. They, they almost look brand new still. It's just great. Um, and then, yeah, so I, I'm a an ambassador for K-Light Dynamo lights. So I had the Dynamo on the front, the huge uh, three-beam headlight. Yeah, yeah, I've got the spent, I've got the one of them, but it's not the the new bike packer one that can run on yeah. lower wattage, which kind of sucks because yeah. like I just find it's not the greatest, you know. Yeah, yeah. So and then that goes through uh, to a opening in my top tube bag, which goes to a um, charger, so I can a USB charger, so I can charge. Is that the K Light USB box? Yeah, yeah, yeah. So I can charge um, uh, K Light uh, charge uh, battery banks while I'm riding, mm. <clears throat> which again, you would only do if you're maintaining a constant speed for a day. So we wouldn't do it on the more arduous days, but if we knew we were having a sort of a more chill day, we would just chuck our batteries on mm-hmm. charge. And then that also powers a permanently flashing rear light. So we had our front and rear lights on 24 seven for the entire trip. And it really makes a difference. I, I can't emphasize enough how noticeable it is when a car comes around a corner if you happen to be sharing um, the trail uh, their engine note changes immediately even if it's Mm -hmm. on the horizon Mm -hmm. and that does that just doesn't happen when you're not don't have this blaring front headlight yeah yeah and there's actually there's quite a good amount of posts I saw about that in the last year where British like you know racers and champions they're they're like I will never ride without a flashing front light because it's You know, yep. it's gotten to the point where people are so, yep. not to use the word ignorant, but they're just so self-concerned that they don't yep. care about anybody else. Like, yeah. probably yeah. ignorance is the right word. Um, if, yeah, if you can but, if you can get their attention on their peripheral vision, you are steps ahead of yeah anything. So, so yeah, so that that was great. We had them attached, and um, yeah, and then we ride with flat bars so that the, the tumbleweed. I was going to ask that, yeah. bike, but we have um. Uh, flat bars made by um, Outkit that have a front loop. So it's another hand position, but it's also a place yeah. where you can hang the bar bag. So it doesn't touch your front head tube. It doesn't touch your cables. It just sits there perfectly. And then we have um, uh, ergon grips, um, the ergonomic grips with the bar ends on them. So I think I counted mm-hmm. nine, dif- nine different hand positions, which really helps. Yeah, yeah I've, used, I've used ones with on the, the bike. Like the GP3s, yeah. not the too bigger, yeah. but the yeah. smaller ones. And yeah. now, yeah, so, now I'm always like, oh, do I stick with those or do you just go with the yeah. Ergon grips? Because I don't yeah. know. It's, yeah, it's always a tough call what you keep in the long run. But I, my yeah, mountain yeah. bike currently has the bar ends and I just yeah. ordered a new set of grips and stuff for my fat bike and they don't. So, yeah. 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 I think it's just uh, for me, having the bar ends opens up your chest when you're standing and climbing you're not hunched over mm-hmm. um, and I think for me that works and then of course when you're just riding normally you've got so many more hand positions so yeah. it comes out and as long as you don't have so, too much if you have too much flare like kickback yeah. I guess then it's yes. not so practical no. but in, in uh, on a relatively medium yeah. style flare back or kickback yeah, yeah, whatever yeah. you call it yeah. Yeah. so no they were good and then we had uh, 2.8 inch 27 by 2.8 inch tyres running tubeless never had a puncture uh Never had a mechanical 
the entire ride. And you're still chains. running roll off, right? Yes. And yeah, are you guys yeah. using belt drive or chain? No, just chain. So okay, I wanted to ask about that. Yeah, because I actually didn't pay attention to your post enough to see it. But uh, how right. do you find it? Because <laughs> I've considered doing the same thing. Yeah. And it's like you know, it's kind of so, like, yeah. It's it's one of those things. So I carry three lengths of chain, like mm-hmm. lengths of chain to repair the chain if it broke, which I've never, ever broken a single speed or a roll-off chain. Because it's a thicker chain too, right? It's a little bit thicker. No, it's just no? a normal chain. It's just no, normal? I just, run, okay. I just run an eight-speed chain from um, KNC. Okay, okay. So an eight, yeah, But an eight-speed is chain. probably durable-ish? Yeah. yeah. Well, it, it, it's... The, yeah, there's various... Um, levels of thought about the, the reliability of chains and the narrower the chain and the more, you know, like a 12-speed chain, it doesn't mean it's less reliable because they're made to a higher tolerance right. and better quality. They're, they're made to la- yeah, they're made for... Same with, mm-hmm. you know, hollow pins and stuff. That doesn't mean it's going to wear out quicker. It's actually a better pin. So there's various um, things we could go into, get into nerd, nerd town on that. But um, no, we just ride high-speed chains. And if it breaks, you've got this three links of chain fix it keep riding if you destroyed it you can go into the local shop mm-hmm. in the middle of bolivia and buy a chain with a belt drive you need to carry a belt and you can't just jam it in somewhere because if you kink it it doesn't work properly uh, okay. so you need to have it in a box i know some people just do sort of slide them in somewhere strategically but in reality you need it in a box you need to carry it if that one breaks then you're in trouble if if mm-hmm. you know one of your cog or chain ring breaks, you need to buy one of them, which isn't going to happen. Yeah. Um, so we we carry a spare cog for the roll off because it weighs nothing, and you can swap it with a split pin. And um, yeah, so that's we, a good point because I remember like when I interviewed Ryan Van Duzer, he was yeah. he was on his way into New Mexico, and I think yeah. he still had like I don't know how many hundreds of miles to go, but he broke his carbon belt and he was doing this section a little later because the weather had yeah. caught him the first time and he lives in Boulder. Yeah. It's not so far. Yeah. And he's like, so I didn't bring the belt. Cause I thought, no, nah, I, I made it. Th- you know, yeah. I made it 4,000 or 3,500 kilometers. What's the last, what's going to happen the last 800. Yeah. And sure yeah. enough, he broke yeah. his belt and it was yeah. game end game, game over, you know? Yeah. No, nah, so I wouldn't hesitate buying a gear, uh, a belt drive bike for commuting and getting around. I've got a, um, uh, the latest version of the Omnium cargo bike. That I've got oh, you got one? Mini. Yeah. yeah, I've got a Mini Max. It's one of my favorite bikes I've ever owned. And that has, the new version has uh, rocking dropouts. So in the future, I, yeah, I wouldn't mind putting a belt drive on there or something, which would be great for that kind of bike. Mm-hmm. Just getting around town and everything. But the long distance stuff, I don't think I would bother you know if for some reason i was forced to it wouldn't be a problem but yeah um, and without yeah. all the shifting i think the chains last forever anyways if you're just constantly yeah. in, in a straight uh, line and there's no there's no side stress uh, there's no there's, yeah it's we don't lube them like we lube them every three or four days i think you know and we just use cheap we use the cheapest wet lube we can find and just jump dump it on and ride like we don't clean them we literally didn't clean our chains once the mm. entire trip um, it just eventually falls off and, you know, it just stays silent. So the roll-offs, yeah, were absolutely flawless. So, yeah, and then uh, this trip, I guess the difference is that I use flat pedals, which I've never bike-packed with before, okay. but I think I'm a, I'm a bit of a convert there. I think that if you're riding technical terrain, it's actually not a bad idea if you're getting on and off all the time. Um, but if you're riding extremely long distances over a long time frame, 
obviously just having the same pair of shoes or for everything is perfect. So the mm-hmm. um, five, five ten makes some really good shoes that are perfectly rigid on the bike and perfectly flexible on the ground. And um, so I ran them. The the hope pedals did chew through the soles, so I actually replaced the shoes at six thousand kilometers just because I had an opportunity to. Um, I don't know if they would have made it the 10,000 kilometres, but Chelsea's um, Salomon's made it easily. She's still wearing them today. So, mm. you know, due choice is an, is an issue there, but, you know, um, yeah, so that was a new thing for me, the flat pedals, but um, I wouldn't put them on a normal bike, but I really enjoy them. On there. I have them on my cargo. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah I use clip-ins on everything, but I think it's yeah. just – I'm so comfortable in them because I've been riding since, you know, yes. being a young teenager clipped yeah. in. Yeah. And it's just been such a long process that I'm yeah. I'm not uncomfortable where, you know, if, if you, yeah. obviously, if you're not as experienced with them and you go with whatever's com- most comfortable. Yeah. You know? yeah, yeah. No, Chelsea loves them. She's fine with flipless, but she now rides. Um, she actually destroyed her knee playing ice hockey in Australia. And, uh, and after that, just sort of, but I, uh, while she's recovering, she just ride flat pedals and then never went back to SPD mm. because they've just been absolutely perfect for her. Yeah, yeah. So, yeah. I was actually going to say a while back when we were talking was that uh, there's a big, I think I, I, I always see it is um, people try to do huge days when they start touring, not realizing that being on a loaded bike and they just, next thing you know, they're like, what do I do about my knees? My knees are in constant oh, yeah. pain. I can hardly walk. Yeah. And it's like, well, you need to take a week off and rest and let your yeah. body recover. And then yeah. you need to cut your mileage down and, yeah. and, yeah. or get rid of some of your gear if you're carrying too much, yeah. you know, like yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. such a common problem. Yep. Yeah. So, uh, how many bikes do you have in Canada now? You know, since uh, we've only, only got four between the two of us. So we arrived with our, um, tumbleweeds and then, um, we picked up two of the RSD sergeants, um, which is really great. The guys at RSD just, yeah, sent them across and they were here in a couple of days and we were just over the moon to have a bike. You know, they're not disposable bikes, but they're certainly not our uh, sentimental, well-set-up, well-thought-out, yeah. you know, tumbleweeds that we don't want to lock up at the local store and they're not really, you know, to, uh, trail bikes the way they're set up. So mm-hmm. we've been having a ball for the last Do the week sergeants so. have suspension? And- no, so the, um, the, the, the there's, there's different builds. And we have the adventure build and the adventure build comes with the four inch tires and with a rigid fork with, okay. um, with uh, cargo mounts on it. The normal builds have normal 27 by 2.6 tires and a 140 mil fork, I think. Okay. Uh, so they're just very, yeah, they're just different builds. So we asked for those builds to get us through winter. And then when spring comes along, we'll um, <clears throat> just put some 2.8s on there and, They'll be uh, just normal everyday trail bikes. Mm. But, uh, I, yeah, I think I might pick up a couple of their other bikes. Being an ambassador, I think uh, they've got some really. I nice was looking through steel it. And, yeah, they got some beautiful bikes. Yeah. They do steel, titanium, and aluminum, yeah. right? So, so yeah. the middle child in steel just looks so beautiful, and of course has sliding dropout. So that'll be my single speed. And then um, I haven't owned a dual suspension since 29ers. Oh no, I have. I think I had one, but 
yeah, seriously owned a dual suspension for a long yeah, time, yeah. so I might might pick up one of those at some stage too. And are they more? Um, um, are they are they geared towards? Um, they're like their full suspension bike. Is it geared to more like cross country, or is it geared more to like all mountain got, or whatever? And again, a couple of builds, and okay. a couple of different varieties. So mm-hmm. yeah, yeah, yeah. So I, I, I'm torn. You know, these days you can ride a. 140 or 150 mil bike and it's just perfect for everything you know with the suspension designs mm-hmm. and damping and everything these days yeah my, my fox is, so, my fox forks at 120 and i think i can yeah. adjust it i can change the spacers yeah. to 140 and i'm like yeah. i just don't see the need man like i'm it's more yeah, suspension it's, i've been riding rigid for yeah. for the last while and you yeah. know just using redshift stems and seat posts and yeah. i'm like i could manage it now right. now i'm just gucci you know I don't know. I, I was riding 120 mil for a very long time. And then uh, for some reason ended up with 140 mil fork on my Karate Monkey or another bike. And I was just like over the moon. I couldn't believe how good it was. You know, the, the trail damping and the the rebound, the speed of the rebound mm-hmm. and everything for such a long travel, not long travel fork, but long for me. And so now I'm sort of like, yeah, I, you know, Chelsea's still got a hundred and a hundred mil fork on one of her bikes, and that's completely fine for her because yeah. she weighs less and is less aggressive. But I, yeah, I couldn't believe it. So it's worth giving it a try if you can, uh, if you can swap it to one forty just for the fun of it. I'm not even sure how. I have the manual and stuff. I mean, I can look it up. It's probably is tricky. Yeah. Yeah. So it's um. But I did buy the the nicer, more expensive fork because I was getting a good yeah. deal. And when I yeah. asked my buddy Carl, he's like. Well, if you have the option of this, 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 and this, and you yeah. can spot the money, he's like, get get the Fox, you know, racing yeah. factory racing one. He's like, yeah. Also, the difference between a one twenty and a one forty on the same frame is that yeah, you'll raise your bottom bracket a little bit, but you'll slacken your head angle, and then that's a whole different experience as well. So it's a it's a different it's a different ride yeah, altogether, yeah. just for the fun of it. So like we we're saying before, if you've got the opportunity to ride all the bikes then may as well give it a go at mm-hmm. some stage i say <laughs> nice and um yeah what else what else can we talk about um yeah any- well i mean i was just uh, yeah just stoked to be here in canada now so like we we were during uh lockdown or the covid restrictions we really explored uh new south wales so we were living right. in the act which is a, a territory inside a larger state and what we're, you know, we had all these grand plans of travel and cycling and stuff, but then got stuck in the state and mm. we had an absolute ball and it really made us appreciate staying close to home and not burning, you know, all that, you know, creating a carbon footprint to go to another country and dealing with the stress and everything of getting your bikes on the plane and all these things that, again, are a first world problem. Yeah, but, yeah. So now I'm just, yeah, I've, uh, very stoked to be in Canada and start that process again. So sort of yeah. really get to know the mountains and get to know the culture. And it's, it's very similar to Australia, but at the same time, it's very different. Um, so it's uh, yeah, a lot it's, less desert here. <laughs> yeah. But I mean, desert, yeah, desert is a term we use for hot, dry places. But yeah. Yeah. It can still just be a cold expanse of nothing. And you could call that a desert. We, we do have that. Yeah. yeah. There's a lot of that around here, but yeah. Um, so I mean, I rode through Quebec and you know, eastern Canada. I just I can't remember seeing 
ranges, but they're like mountain ranges. There are. There's like the Laurentian Mountains are just north yeah. of Montreal towards towards yeah. Gatineau, where like Chelsea, where I live. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and they go all the way, I think, to the Gaspé Coast. Uh, yeah. That's the Chickchalk Mountains there. Um, yeah. I mean, there's lots, so, but they're they're from like the first ice age, so they're really small yeah. now, like relatively yeah. small. They're they're more like rounded Australia. and smaller, yeah. yeah. Whereas yeah. the Rockies are the last ice age, and they're still much much. Yeah, rockier. Yeah. yeah, and I mean, and that's sort of what we we're talking about before. Like, I, I just find it amazing in Edmonton how healthy the mountain biking community is. And same when I look at any anything from Eastern Canada, there's people out getting about making the most of whatever hills or mountains or whatever they happen to yeah, have. Yeah, um, well, I live I live yeah. right next to the Gatineau Park, so I'm really spoiled oh, okay, here. It's perfect. like. Yeah. yeah, yeah. So you and Chelsea will have to come visit Chelsea and Absolutely. Uh, come, come rock some mountain biking trails. And yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, any big plans? I know you guys just are settling in Canada, and it's like I guess, like you said, maybe get a job in a bike shop, figure these things yeah. out, do the things that you uh, always wanted to do, right? Yeah, I mean, I, I was big into uh, single speed racing back in the day, and it's more of a uh, it. It feels like a family, the single speed community okay. in Australia and, and in a lot of the Because it's so it, niche, right? Yeah. So we've got a single speed nationals coming up in Tasmania in April. And I won't miss that for the world. So mm. if I can get across to there, I'm going to head across to there and I'll take uh, take a new RSD bike and I might make some bags up for it and do some bike packing while I'm there as well because I've opened up some new a new sort of long distance trail um in Australia, we call them epic trails if they're sort of long. But anyway, okay. uh, there's another one sort of in um, in central South Australia in the desert. So I'd like to get out there and do that just for something different uh, from Canada. Yeah, yeah. So if I can get across to Australia, I'll do that. Chelsea won't be coming for this trip. I'll just be sort of heading across for the Nationals yeah. and catching up with family. But on a larger uh, scale, yeah, we don't even know where we're going to be living yet. So, um, you know, mm. sort of that chicken and the egg thing to get a house and then a job, or do you get a, ha- a job and then a house? If we can uh, work remotely, or, you know, I can work um, in sort of smaller jobs and things, and Chelsea can work remotely, then somewhere like Hinton or Jasper would just be amazing, you know, in mm-hmm. somewhere in the mountains. So we, we just don't know. So until that's settled, um, we have no larger plans, but, um, yeah, I think, you know, when you asked before about how different the world is after after 10 years between the two trips, I sort of, we are a bit um, jaded from some of the experience we had on this trip with respect to, you know, the, the, the pollution and, and uh, uh, yeah, mass tourism and all mm-hmm. these things. So I think long distance trips for us now, minimize that footprint yeah yeah i think we'll like i said earlier i think we'll be sort of enjoying uh, our country and our our province and sort of doing more of that kind of thing um but you know never say never you know we might just end up on the bikes again but yeah uh we've had a uh, that's three years now on the bikes and you know both of those trips were once in a lifetime trips you know many lifetimes worth of memories and we're very grateful for that um, fortune but um yeah yeah it's, so was this past this pa- this last trip was about a year total well no it was no, seven months seven months but, okay. um, yeah yeah by the time you had the the other the other trip and um it was sort of a, i look at things as a calendar year anyway because it's a season of riding yeah, yeah we couldn't have started the trip earlier in scotland 
because it was freezing cold and it was freezing when we were there. We got snowed on and, you know, there was ice everywhere. And What month did you guys start? In April. In April. And then we finished in Turkey in November and it was starting to get very cold. So mm-hmm. that was pretty much the perfect riding season. We had three days of rain in seven months um, because of strategic planning and all sorts of things. But, um, yeah, so when you talk about riding for a year – in order to really ride for a year, you almost need to uh, fly between continents or hemispheres um, in order to avoid wet seasons or winters or whatever. So yeah, yeah, it's just another That's one fine. of those. So I, I, I know we're gonna we're gonna talk a lot about bike bag making at some point, but um, yeah, what what pushed you into that? Like, how did you get involved in bag making? When was I, I think you mentioned COVID, right? Yeah. So I. Um, uh, some people call people who got into new things in COVID, COVID babies. And I was a COVID baby because I had never touched a sewing machine before in my entire life. I, um, even at high school, when we had home economics, I uh, submitted my brother's sewing jobs because he was two years older, older than me. Yeah. And the, they hadn't changed the curriculum. So that the, the, the uh, tests were exactly the same and I would just submit his, his project. Um, so I had literally never touched a sewing machine. We happened to have a sewing machine in the house because um, we thought it was a good idea to be able to repair our own stuff uh-huh. um, for various reasons, not just monetarily, but because it's the right thing to do. We never really touched it. And then during COVID, I just I literally got bored shitless. And one day I pulled out an old Gore-Tex jacket that was dead and decided to just make some uh, mitts to put over my gloves. They're just a, a shell for, yeah, yeah. for winter riding because it gets below zero in Canberra. And it was so easy. I, I could just do it. There's something in my brain that allows me to do it. And then within months, I was making bags. I'd never looked at, uh, at YouTube or anything. So, you know, some people can pick up an instrument and sew. Mm-hmm. I just happened to be able to uh, pick up an instrument and play. Yeah. I just happened to be able to sew. And um, the only place to get the good fabrics in Australia at the time was from the United States and the postage was obviously astronomical and the fabrics aren't cheap either. So I ended up um, buying a lot of X-Pack from America, um, which is one of the primary fabrics I use for mm-hmm. most of my bags and most makers use and making little things and selling them to recuperate the cost. And then it just spiraled from there. And, you know, anyone can get into making their own gear, but you really won't get better unless you practice, obviously. Yeah, but yeah. How many bags can you make for you and your wife and your friends? Not not enough. So the selling of the bags is what really made it possible for me to develop my skills and then buy better machines that are more suited to what I'm doing. Yeah, yeah. Buy, buy more fabrics, buy more um, of the, you know, it's not all the fabric, it's the, the parts that go into the bag, mm-hmm. all the plastics and buckles and the different technologies there, the different techniques. And so it, it all just kept going. I ended up, you know, on average making two or three frame bags a week plus that a couple might of other li- yeah, wow. yeah, little, little projects and, you know, pulling out. A- and was this still part-time? Like you had another job or you were kind of like- Yeah, yeah I was still just working in the army, working yeah. from home 50% of the time after COVID. They sort of allowed us to still do the work from home thing. So, I could work for two hours and then have an hour long break and, you know, manage my time. So I was still getting Mm -hmm. all of my work done, but I was probably getting that work done because I was able to have a bit of an escape for an hour during the day. And then so in the afternoon and 
by the time I got everything down pat, I could make a frame bag in two and a half hours um, from scratch. And yeah, so it just that really helped me get things going. Yeah, so, yeah. That's cool, man. Yeah. I, I really look forward to talking to you about that. I have a singer machine upstairs that was my grandma's. Yep. Oh wow! And I think the I think my grandma's maybe my mom's, but my mom's pretty old too. So it's like yeah, yeah. It's, it's been around. Yeah. Uh, but I think there's something with the pedal. Uh, I have to look yeah. into it. But I've been meaning to because I'm like I want to build a bag at some point just well, for the hell should, of it, uh, you know? Not you should flick me a photo of it because I started on a Singer machine, a um, 1956 Singer machine. Okay. Because they're all steel interior, mm-hmm. so they still work as good as they did in 1956, and they sew through anything. You just buy a jeans needle, which is a yeah, yeah. stronger needle. And you can use up to Tech 70 um, thread, which is the, the biggest thread that most of our bags okay. are made with. And um, I lit- I've bought one here in Canada now because all my stuff's still in Australia. I actually just bought a 1953 Singer, and that's what I'm using to make oh, the wow. frame bags. Yeah, the yeah. frame bags at Chelsea. I'll have to check what I'll have to check what age it is and stuff. But I know yeah, my, flip, my parents. Flip me a photo. They have another one at their house because my dad sails, yeah. and he's also he refuses to. You know, like cushions and stuff for a sailboat yeah. with the special materials, so yeah, expensive. Yeah. So he yeah. bought his own foam. He makes his own stuff. He he redid the right. upholstery on the chairs in the kitchen, yeah, the yeah, dining yeah. room. So uh, there should be some uh, genetic correlation there, hopefully. Yeah, yeah. well, that's the thing. So my my grandma and my auntie were seamstresses, and when they came across from Yugoslavia after the war, after the Second World War, they were working in sort of sweatshops in Adelaide. And um, no way. I, I must have, it must have been passed down. And a little bit like my grandpa used to make, used to build bike wheels back in Yugoslavia on the other side of the family. And, you know, maybe that came down through the plus. Yeah, yeah. So, you might have to just get some spokes and a couple of rims. And yeah. Try it oh, out. No, I, I make wheels. Yeah. It's just, um, I don't know that I don't make them for anyone else. I make them for myself yeah, yeah, in yeah. case they're a terrible job, but I haven't failed yet. So, yeah, we'll see. That's awesome, yeah. man. Well, hey, this has been a great conversation. Um, yeah. Not sure what else to ask you. Is there anything I'm missing that you'd like to talk about? No, no, no. Just, uh, uh, I think, yeah, I mean, I, I've got an injury at the moment, so I'm hoping I'm sort of going to get through that. And uh, if there's anyone out there with a, a torn labrum, and if you jump on the internet and look up torn labrum, it immediately tells you that you can't ride a bike. But I just rode 10,000 kilometers uh, across a continent and I'm fine after. Yeah, that's not everyone's experience, obviously. For sure. But, but there is hope. Um, and if anyone wants to talk about that, give me a yell. I also have uh, some weird heart issues and things if anyone wants to talk about those things and how to get. I want to Google what a lab room is. Yeah, it's a little. Um, uh, the hip thing, yeah. yeah, hip thing. That's sort of, it's a seal around your hip joint. And when you tear it, what it means is that you can't, it doesn't hold the fluid in that core, that is the sac. It's kind of like the that, oil that keeps your things the moving. The oil, out. and it doesn't, it doesn't create a suction with your hip. No one can see what I'm showing you right now yeah, on the yeah. camera, but it doesn't create a suction. Just imagine everybody, joint. he's fisting his hand. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and if you, if, if you tear it, what you end up doing is you just destroy your hip over time. Oh, okay. And the only real fix for it is a hip replacement. And luckily hip replacements are very successful these days and yeah. very effective. So I just have that to look forward to, but it was terrifying because I only found out two weeks before we left on the trip. So, um, yeah. And I'm having a bit of pain now because I'm on a new bike. So I'm doing little adjustments to that, but, um, 
do you yeah, have to do a little bit more? Like you do a little bit more maintenance, a little more stretching, yoga. Does that kind Absolutely. of stuff help? Uh, yeah. And I think that's why I'm mentioning it, just in case there's anyone out there who's having issues, um, or if you have any uh, any uh, advice advice for me, yeah. uh, it's a two way street. I'd love to know. Uh, and I just brought that up because it's literally hurting right now after I went on a ride. So yeah. oh, man. one of those things. But you know, um, we all have have issues. There's no one out there that's well. There's almost no one out there that's got free. Mm-hmm. No, no, nobody at all. Um, me, it's wrists. Like maybe youth oh, and yeah. snowboarding and crashing, and yes. you, know, you stick your arms out. Yeah, and that's why the the suspension has been a game changer. Because when I was riding yeah. rigid, like yeah. I would some I'd finish, I'd be like, oh, just massaging my wrists, like, yeah, you know. Well, so, my so. my gravel bike, I've got one of the Cannondale slates. Like a while back, they brought out um, a a gravel bike, like at the start of the gravel phase, that has thirty mils of suspension on a lefty fork. Mm-hmm. And that is just beautiful. Yeah, it makes so much different. 30 mils on a 40 mil tire is a lot, you know, on gravel. Mm-hmm. And um, I'm the same. Yeah, I've got, I broke a scaphoid in one of my wrists. Um, and yeah, I've always been having issues with that. But yeah. Yeah. And then uh, today I just went to the shop to try to get some of those extra thick foam grips. Forgot which brand they are. I love them, and they are like the Wolf good... Tooth Megapaw things, yeah, or Mega Fab, sort of that things. kind of thing. Yeah. yeah, they are great for my wrists as well. Yeah, yeah I was using when last you, year Wolf Tooth Mega Fat Paw yeah. on my yeah, yeah. Um, on my winter fat bike. That's what I want. Just them for, yeah, just to give yeah. that like insulation yeah. level, you know. Well, and you've got more to grip with your yeah, gloves yeah. or whatever you've got on. So yeah. Um, yeah. Which is the, my next project. I'm going to make some pogies uh, for our bikes. So, yeah, that's the. And are the all next your bikes all your bikes are flat bar? Yes, at the gravel bike. Uh, well, actually, no. I made my gravel bike flat bar because I had a neck injury for a period, and then realized it was just as fast, just as comfortable, and just as actually a little bit more fun. So I left the uh, flat bars on there. Mm. Um, it had uh, Altegra brakes, which luckily Shimano, you can just swap the levers over and leave the brakes on there because the um, the displacement's the same. Okay. So I, I just chucked some new levers on there, bled them, and started riding, and it was a uh, really narrow bars, but um, so much fun <laughs> with the with the thirty mil suspension. Yeah, it's sort of like a nineteen nineties mountain bike. Um, so yeah, but no, Chelsea Chelsea loves her flat bar gravel mm. bike but that's pretty much all we have at the moment. I can't lean forward in my hip anymore so I'm never going to ride a flat a, a drop bar bike again. Oh okay. Yeah yeah. My buddy um, with the tumbleweed he's uh he's yeah. riding a drop bars um cuz Oh, oh right. Wow. I keep getting some messages that pop up and it's, of course it's going to be in the podcast but whatever. Yeah. yeah um yeah, no, yeah I so I think it, I think it is a prospector. Um I really well, do believe Well there's the so. stargazer. The tumbleweed brought out a stargazer which is a drop. He's bar got bar. the stargazer I believe. Yeah, yeah never yeah. mind. So that's yeah. you can't put a roll off on that. Well, you, you can, but you, oh it's probably through axle, so you probably can't. But yeah, um that's their new so when we met Daniel from Tumbleweed into Italy he was on a titanium stargazer so they make a titanium mm version of that so a titanium version of the uh, of the tumbleweed would be amazing because you would lose a bit of weight but uh, I'm completely fine with the steel yeah. but, um, but I find like probably the, the amount of weight you lose over just a frame is not yeah. that significant you know like it's yeah. all your other components that add the weight yeah. you know you, yeah, you yeah, yeah. I mean, when you have lightweight wheels, if you have car- if carbon fiber rims and you're using higher yeah. end uh, components, that that's what yeah. sheds the weight, right? So 
Yeah, exactly. Yeah, or you just take a big dump in the morning and you're good. Exactly. Yeah, just uh, <laughs> a couple handfuls of flaxseed or something. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Just, ah. Yeah, it's funny. It's funny. Like the, the things we go to to save some weight and yeah, in the shave hour. your legs. Yeah. 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 Well. I do, and that's for other reasons. Like you know, it's just easier to uh, bandage and easy to put sunscreen on, cleaner to put sunscreen on, and easy to clean yourself when you don't have much water. You mm-hmm. know, when you're out in the water. So weird one, but I still shave my legs after uh, probably I haven't raced a road bike in 15 years. Now less than that, probably 10 years. Old still, habits I, die hard. Yeah, still shave. So. Awesome. Well, let's end it on that note. Uh, you don't have to hang up, but we'll say Words, bye. Not pictures, and yeah. I'll, uh, yeah, yeah. yeah, don't send me any photos. And uh, <laughs> <laughs> we'll just say goodbye. Thanks for thanks for all your time. That was great, man. Thank you very much. I want to end the show by thanking all my listeners once again for the emails and comments I regularly receive from you. It really helps motivate me and keep me going with this project and to continue sharing people's amazing stories. If you have questions or comments, you can email me at bike at bikepackadventures.ca or go to bikepackadventures.ca and shoot me a message through the contact form. You can also check out the webpage for past podcast episodes, bikepacking routes throughout Canada, blog posts, videos, and touring tips. Lastly, I'd like to once again thank all the individuals and companies that are supporting the podcast. If you are enjoying the show and like what I'm doing, you can become one of my show supporters by going to patreon.com slash bikepackadventures. And for just a few dollars a month, you can help keep this show going. You can also help out by sending a one-time donation through PayPal. This money all goes back into the podcast, help me to cover the costs associated with running the show, buy new equipment when necessary, and produce the high-quality content that you've become accustomed to. Much appreciated, and keep on pedaling.